And now, a Sorry Wrong Door production of a podcast for your enjoyment. Strange, interesting, and slightly gamey. An absurd glimpse into the post-eclectic age. Sugar's only sweetness. Salt is ocean tears. And you were my only weakness. For years and years and years. Are we going? SISG is a broad spectrum show where we cover topics from the worlds of music, live entertainment, film, nostalgia, pop culture, and anything else that comes into our heads, all with an emphasis on the strange and the unusual. It's basically the things that interest us and we hope will interest you too. Now the devil, she must be a dentist with deep jawbreaker eyes. Red rope hair, gumdrop lips, cotton candy thighs. You're my candy. Hey everybody, welcome to podcast number seven. This is Greg. This is Uncle Frank. And this is Jimmy Sweets. Fellas, what do we got on the show today? Well, we have an expose on the great Phil Harris. One of the all-time greatest voice actors. And we also have an interview with great thespian Clay Martinez and his many lives. And you're not going to want to miss a roundtable of our favorite movie endings, plus pretentious readings with scholastic books featuring Encyclopedia Brown. Let's get going. This is Lyle Wagoner for the IRS with a word about accuracy. When you do your income tax return, check your math. Use the peel-off label and envelope from your tax package. Attach all W-2s and schedules. And don't forget to sign your return. Be accurate. Then things go right. No delays if you're waiting for a refund. A message from the IRS.
necessities, the simple bare necessities. Forget about your worries and your strife. I mean the bare necessities or Mother Nature's recipes that bring the bare necessities of life. Wherever I wander, wherever I roam, I couldn't be found of my big home. The bees are buzzing in the tree to make some honey just for me. When you look under the rocks and plants and take a glance at the fancy ants, then maybe try a few. The bare necessities of life will come to you. They'll come to you. Look for the bare necessities, the simple bare necessities. Forget about your worries and your strife. I mean the bare necessities, that's why a bear can rest. Everyone knows that mellow Hepcat voice that we're listening to right now. It's the voice of Baloo the Bear from Disney's Jungle Book. And most of us know that it's the great Phil Harris providing the voice for that character. Some of you also probably know that Phil Harris also did voices for the Aristocats and Robin Hood. But Phil Harris was much more than an animation voice artist. In fact, almost 50 years before The Jungle Book, Phil Harris was a professional drummer. Then he moved on to band leader, on to radio personality, and then became a solo performer. And all through these years, he also appeared in over 20 films. So I didn't know he did all of these movies. He started in the 30s and went clear to the 60s. Did a bunch of uh, TV shows like F Troop, like you were telling me, actually. and uh, Love Boat? Yeah, well, I don't think yeah. he made the Love Boat, but he might No, he have. was on the Love Boat. Oh, he was? Yeah. And yeah. Fantasy Island. Beautiful. Oh, man, they got all those people to be on those shows. <laughs> well, we bring up his career uh, today because not too long ago, Jimmy Sweets rediscovered the man on YouTube. What he saw and found refreshing was the Phil Harris after the death of his radio career, when he recreated himself as a solo act. He still appeared in occasional films and had dramatic and comic roles on TV, but mostly he could be seen on variety shows. From the late 50s clear through the 70s, <coughs> Phil Harris's charisma and unique personality shined brightly on these shows. This persona was kind of honed during his radio show days, but it derived from the Mariel Man himself. So right now, let's listen to a rendition of one of his hits he performed in 1969 on the Johnny Cash Show. You have to imagine Phil lighting up a cigarette, then using it as a prop and conducting his wand and punctuating with it and sometimes singing to it and taking a drag on it from time to time and all along using his whole body to subtly express his energy. Everybody's wanting to know how's Alice, I'm sure. Alice yeah. is just wonderful, Alice, and she said to be sure when I got to Nashville to give everyone her love, and she would have liked to have been here, but she's having a little dental work done, and you folks know what that is. But I just want to tell you that uh, I've been married to Alice now for 28 years. That's a pretty good record, you know, for a, mm. you know. Well, she's a pretty nice girl, but you know something? 28 years I've been married to her, John, and uh, truthfully, I don't think she's changed a bit. No kidding. Well, maybe a little bit, you know, I mean. Now when she says goodnight, her handshake isn't quite as firm. As <laughs> <it>. <laughs> oh, really? <clears throat> Bill, you got some great songs to your credit. You've done a uh, great job on 
some fantastic songs throughout the year. Thank you. So sure have you. Thank you. But I'll tell you something. I got four or five songs, and everybody in Nashville and everybody all over the country have, uh, well, they keep asking for them. Makes it tough for me to try to do a new tune, but I feel highly honored they keep asking for them. If you don't mind, I'd like to lay That's one on the you one now. They want to hear. I'm ready. Let it go, will you, fellas? With a heart of gold, the ways of a gentleman I've been told, the kind of a guy that wouldn't even harm a flea. But if me and a certain character met the guy that invented that cigarette, I'm gonna murder that son of a gun in the first degree. Not that I don't smoke myself, and I don't reckon they'll harm your health. I've smoked all my life, and I ain't dead yet. Hey, them nicotine slaves are all the same at a betting party or a poker game. Everything's gotta quit while they smoke a cigarette. They gotta smoke that cigarette. They gotta puff it, puff it, puff it until they puff themselves to that house, St. Peter's Golden Gate. I hate to make you wait, but I just got to have another cigarette. And he gave a chance the other night, old Dame Fortune was doing me right. Them kings and queens just kept on dropping around. I played him hard and I bet him high, but my bluff didn't work on a certain guy. He kept on raising and laying that cabbage in. He'd raise me and I'd raise him, started to sweat, had to sink or swim. He finally called, but didn't raise the bet. I said, Ace is full, Clyde, how about you? He said, I'm gonna tell you in a minute or two, Leroy, but right now I'm gonna have a drag on my gasper. Smoke that cigarette. He had to puff it, puff it, puff it, till he puffed himself to that hell. St. Peter's the Golden Gate, man, I don't wanna make you wait. I got to have another cigarette. The other night, I had a date with the cutest little gal in 50 states, a hybrid uptown fancy little thing. I know that she loved me and things were about like they ought to be, so hand in hand, we forgot down loving lady. She was oh so far from a cake of ice, our smooching party was so nice, so healthy, and I think I'd have been there yet. Ooh, I give her that hug and a little squeeze, and she said, Filthy, excuse me, please, but right here, I gotta have a filter, daddy. Smoke, smoke, smoke that cigarette. Yeah, she had a puff, 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 until she puffed herself to that hell, St. Peter's the Golden Gate. I don't want to make you wait, but I just got to have another cigarette. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's coffee, Mama. Yeah. We talked a little bit before the song about Phil Harris's stage persona and how some of it came from his own character. The jive talk, for example, was real. He'd been in the music business for many years and he used that lingo from when he was a young man to his dying day. I've listened to interviews uh, with Phil and I couldn't understand half of the stuff he was saying. <laughs> you know, I, I don't understand that translator. Kind, of, kind of slang. Um, he also kept crazy hours like his character too. Uh, his longtime band member, Remley, said that Phil Harris marrying Alice Faye saved his life, meaning Remley's life, because before the marriage, Phil and he would play late into the night with the band, then they'd eat dinner, then they'd play pool till dawn, have a midnight snack, sleep until the afternoon, and get up and rehearse and start the whole day over again. <laughs> so that part was real. The story about his alcohol consumptions were partly true, too, as well. Uh, he was never an alcoholic, but the man never minded a drink, and he played this up for humor. When he played on the celebrity golf tournaments, he listed himself as playing for the Jack Daniels Country Club. <laughs> and, and he often said 
that he couldn't die yet because the government had to found a safe place to bury his liver. Um, once on the Andy Williams show, uh, Phil was rehearsing with Pat Boone and Andy Williams, and it came time for a break. So immediately he said, come on, Andy, let's go across the street and get us a drink. And you can come along too, Pat. And Pat Boone said, you know, I don't think so. Uh, and I don't drink. And he goes, you don't drink? You mean never? And he turned over to Andy and he says, Andy, can you imagine getting up in the morning and knowing that that's the best you're going to feel for the whole day? <laughs> <laughs> and then Andy Williams goes, hey, you know what? I kind of like waking up in the morning and feeling naturally good. In, in fact, I think nothing of walking five miles a day. And Phil Harris replied, I don't think much of that either. <laughs> Here's a bit with Phil Harris and Dean Martin playing up both their reputations as drinkers. In this skit, they're having a tea party on the Dean Martin show. What doesn't seem to be part of the skit is that someone has spiked the tea. After that, we have some one of his biggest hits uh, about something found in a box. One lump of tea. Dean, you dog, you just give me one kid. I'm driving. You oh, all right. You do. Yeah, baby. Anything for a pal. I just want you to, you know, enjoy yourself. You just sit there and sip. Say, Mr. Martin. Yeah? Mr. Martin. Yeah, baby. It was nice of you to have me here tonight. Now I was as nervous as can be when I heard that you picked me out of all the folks that you thought to invite. Well, Mr. Harris. Yeah. Oh, Mr. Harris. Yeah, baby. Oh, and it's party time. That's what I always do. I get a couple guys like you and some milk and cookies, too. On the level, Mr. Martin, on your tea tray, Mr. H. <laughs> oh, this is strong tea. You melted my spoon here. <laughs> Nothing like a little afternoon soiree, is there, baby? You know something? This is nectar of the gods. Now, don't tell me. Don't tell me. Let me go again here, baby. Go ahead. Don't hang your head here. We may not be back this way. <laughs> Orange Pico, 1959. Right. That was a very good year. <laughs> Around this show, we go first class, pal of mine. Look. Now, Mr. Mott. Oh, Mr. Harris. Mr. Mott. Yes, Mr. Harris. Is it true that you do everything yourself? Writing all the stuff you say and rehearsals every day, you must be as busy as a little elf. Oh, Mr. Harris! Yeah, baby. Yeah, Mr. Harris. Who are you coming through? Every word you said is absolutely true. In the studio each day, getting ulcers, getting gray. Oh, that's just awful, Mr. Mark. Oh, that's just silly, Mr. A. While I was walking down the beach one bright and sunny day, I saw a great big wooden box a-floatin' in the bay. I pulled it in and opened it up, and much to my surprise, ooh, I discovered a... Right before my eyes, oh, I discovered a 
right before my eyes. I picked it up and ran to town as happy as a king. I took it to a guy I knew who'd buy most anything. But this is what he hollered at me as I walked in his shop. Oh, get out of here with that. Before I call a cop. Oh, get out of here with that. Before I call a cop. I turned around and got right out of running for my life. And then I took it home with me to give it to my wife. But this is what she hollered at me as I walked in the door. Oh, get out of here with that. And don't come back no more. Oh, get out of here with that. And don't come back no more. I wandered all around the town until I chanced to meet a hobo who was looking for a hand out on the street. He said he'd take most any old thing. He was a desperate man. But when I showed him the, he turned around and ran. Oh, when I showed him the, he turned around and ran. I wandered on for many years, a victim of my fate, until one day I came upon St. Peter at the gate. And when I tried to take it inside, he told me where to go. Get out of here with that. And take it down below. Oh, get out of here with that. And take it down below. The moral of the story is if you're out on the beach and you should see a great big box and it's within your reach, don't ever stop and open it up. That's my advice to you. Cause you'll never get rid of them. No matter what you do. Oh, you'll never get rid of them. No matter what you do. That last song was The Thing. It was written by Charles Randolph Green and recorded the same year in 1950 on October 13th for Phil Harris. It lasted 14 weeks on the charts and it made it to number one. It was his biggest hit. Uh, that's crazy, a novelty song. Yeah, well, most, I mean, most of his songs were novelty songs. He did gospel songs too, but most but, of them were like that. But even the cigarette song is a little bit more like a country song or something. It's, yeah. it's less novelty because well, it's kind of cool, but that is a straight novelty This song. is the first one that he actually made famous before anyone else did. Like, Smoke the Cigarette, someone else had done, and he picked it up and made it bigger. But um, none of them he wrote, I don't think. And this is the... The Thing is the only one, I think, that he made famous more than someone else. Um, you can hear the fun Phil had singing that song. He said he picked up the habit of singing regularly when he was on a long ocean voyage and had nothing better to do. But it seems to me that he must have been singing his whole life. In his career, he mostly recorded novelty songs, like we said. But he recorded big band songs and gospel songs. He liked to sing as he went along. I saw this American Sportsman one time when I was a kid. That's when they just had a show and they had celebrities come and they go fishing or whatever. Oh, okay. And he was with... Um, Bing Crosby, and they were out. I don't know if they were hunting or fishing because they didn't do much of either. And they just he just started singing all of a sudden. Mr. Bing, would you come over here? I'm frying up the fish. And Bing would go, well, that's very good. And and they pretty much sang and, and drank and, and did fish. And I don't know if they ever hunted the whole show. But that was pretty funny. Um, he always considered, out of all of his singing, the stuff he did for Disney is his best work. He was very proud of that. Mostly we've talked about Phil Harris's later years, but let's go back a little bit to his beginning, see how the man started, and then we'll see his peak when he was at the um, height of his popularity. Phil Harris was born in June 24th in 1904 in Linton, Indiana. 
Phil isn't his real name. His real name is Wanga Philip Harris. His dad named him after a circus Indian. I'm thinking that's not an Indian name. That guy was just, that was his like character. I think he felt too embarrassed to tell him that's not a real name. But anyway, he named Phil after it. So he was Wanga as a little kid. Um, Phil's dad was Harry Harris. His mother was Dolly Wright. She was from Linton. Harry Harris was from a coal mine in Kentucky. And he had learned to play clarinet and got his way out of the coal mine and played in circuses. He was a circus musician. And I think uh, his mother worked for the circus too when they were young. He worked for the Hassenbach and Wallace Circus and the Ringling Brothers Circus. Um, years later, when he was the um, manager of Phil Harris's band, he'd always talk it down and go, you know what, if it's not under canvas, it can't be that good. <laughs> it was always for the circus. When uh, Phil was a little kid, he did all the regular stuff. You know, he said he would push over privies and <laughs> and play mumbly peg or whatever, but it got kind of old fast. And so he picked up drumming just on his own. He carved a few sticks, started playing on all the furniture when he was about five or six. And his mom saw that he was taking it pretty well, so she put him in an amateur show, and he did really well. And his dad kind of helped him a little bit, but not that much. But once they saw um, that he had a flair for it, they put him in the act. I've read a lot that they say his first job, Phil Harris's job, was with his dad's circus band. But he always said the first thing he did was work in this movie theater, silent movie theater. He was on drums. There was a lady with a violin and another one on the piano. And he started thinking, I want to do more sound effects. So he'd do the little things. But then he got this crank. Um, and he'd, when they were cranking up the car, he'd crank it. And he'd blow a whistle. And then he worked his way up to one of those wind machines. He's not even in high school yet. He's doing all this for no extra money. Um, queuing up pretty much all the sound. That was in Linton. Uh, but later he went on and played with his dad's circus. Uh, when he was about 12, they moved to Nashville, which is weird. He didn't spend that much time in the South, and he always called himself a Southerner, and his whole bit was about the Southerner. But, I mean, really, from 12 to 16, maybe, that's when he lives in the South. But that's what he associates with. He said he didn't go to high school very much. He said he spent about 20 minutes there, and that was enough for him. <laughs> he said there was a long hallway. He'd just shoot through that. During high school, he joined with four other guys, uh, and they formed a Dixieland band called the Dixie Syncopators. And they played around Nashville, and they used to open for the local favorite, uh, Francis Craig. And during vacation one year, this lady, Ruth Stonehouse, she came through town, and... Uh, she kind of was down on her luck. She was an actress and needed extra money. So she was going around doing one-act shows. And she saw him and said, Ah, you should come with me. So they started traveling around. And they got to Colorado. And then they met this other guy, an organist, Ed Solit. And he said, Hey, I'm going to open up in Hawaii, in Honolulu. And I'm going to send for you guys. And they're going, Yeah, right, okay. So they're still playing. And, and sure enough, though, he sent for them. Sent him money, and so they went on the ship to Honolulu, and they played in the Honolulu Theater. And they said they were playing like the St. Louis Blues while someone's being hung. It wouldn't have to be appropriate. They're just playing all this jazz music during the silent movies. And But he said the Hawaiians never heard it before, really. Not this kind of Dixieland, so they loved it. On the way over, he met what was going to become his long-life friend. He kept meeting him all his life. It was Frank Frankie Lemley. He was a left-handed ukulele player at the time. And later on, they would become uh, good friends. Well, the Dixie Syncopators, they broke up after that. And the other kids went to school. 
But he took off to San Francisco, and then he he joined a bunch of other bands, Phil Harris. And then he runs into Frankie Lemley, and this time he's a left-handed banjo player. <laughs> and so nothing really happens until he gets set up. Uh, a guy from Australia, one of the Phillips brothers, they had an amusement park called Luna Park in Australia, and they were looking for four jazz musicians to help their jazz up their orchestra in Australia. And they went through and they just happened to pick Frankie Lemley and <laughs> Phil Harris, but also Chuck Mall, who was alto sax, and the pianist Carol Loftner. And that was good because those people later on were the ones that formed a band down in San Diego. When they were done with that, Phil Harris went on and played a lot of bands, but Loftner was picked up by a guy in San Diego who was going to build a ballroom and said, I want you to form a band. And that's when he got Phil Harris and all these guys together with Frankie Lemley. And when they were done there, that that's when they went up to San Francisco and they started doing big stuff. Because all this time, Phil Harris was a drummer. He just played drums. But when he came down to San Diego, when they called him back to play there by the Coronado Hotel, they already had a drummer there and he felt kind of bad. He didn't want to kick the guy out. So... He didn't know what he was going to do, but one of the owners there suggested that, well, why don't you do the front man? The, the guy was named Pop Tudor. <laughs> he was he was some honcho there. So why don't you be the front man? He goes, I don't want to be the front man. They don't really need to conduct all these things. Yeah, but you can sing songs and stuff. Oh, okay. So that's when he first was in front of a band, became almost a band leader by accident. So, but what he would really do is he would just tell the drummer, I'm going to do the upbeat and then you take it from there. They'll follow you from then on and I'll just be pretending out here. <laughs> and so, and then sometimes he would bring the drums out front and he'd be talking, you know, running the show and then he'd play the drums in the front of the thing. So they moved from there to San Francisco in the St. Francis Hotel. And that's when they kind of became a minor hit. They were, they played up there and... People got used to hearing him, and he'd do all the kinds of jokes and sing the songs like he did. And also, they played them on radio, I think on Saturday nights. So a few people started knowing him. Then the guy down at the Coconut Grove was looking for somebody to open up a big act. It was Abe Franks. He was the manager of the Ambassador Hotel. So he calls up at the St. Francis. It just so happens that the manager up there, Jimmy McAbee, is a friend with Phil Harris. And he says, you should take Phil. And and so they talk to Phil, and he kind of just jumps ship. <laughs> but he takes Frankie Lemley with him. <laughs> and they go down <laughs> to the Coconut Grove, where they, they have a big hit. And we're going to play a little bit now from that time so you can hear the 30s sort of flavor. Because he's done with Dixieland. Now he's moved into sort of the early, almost big band. <laughs> Thank you. 
I've got a funny feeling round my heart and I don't know just how to start. Well, tell me what's on your mind. Now I've got you in a spot, come on, confess. Well, I've been trying to express some words that I cannot find. Well, nothing ventured, nothing gained, they say. That's right, honey, that's why I'm gonna spill the beans today. Now, how's about a picture show to start with? Yes, and then, for instance, you can hold my hand. And then perhaps I'll whisper something nice in your ear. Well, how's about it? Well, how's about it, dear? Now, how's about a little supper after? And then, for instance, we can take a walk. Yeah, and then maybe I can have a little kiss when no one is near. Well, how's about it? Well, how's about it, dear? Now, maybe you'll get friendly. I'll get friendly, too. Yes, and maybe you come closer, cause I'll be closer, too. Now, how's about suppose I ask a question? Yes, but then, for instance, I begin to blush. Well, honey, it's only a suggestion. Did I make myself clear? But how's about it? Well, how's about it, dear? How's about a little bit of uh, romance? Yes, and then, for instance, you can meet the folks. Yeah, well, I'd rather have the romance and then meet the folks. Well, how's about it? Well, how's about it, dear? Now, how's about we motor to the country? And then, for instance, we run out of gas. Oh, splendid. Then we'll have to stop and maybe go out of gear. Well, how's about it? Well, how's about it, dear? Now, maybe... You'll get friendly, I'll get friendly too. Yes, and by that time I'm hoping that you'll be closer, cause oh, I'll be closer too. But I was wondering, how's about we're stranded till the morning? Yes, but then for instance, I've got roller skates. Well, it's only a suggestion. Did I make myself clear? But how's about it? Well, how's about it, dear? Say, Leah, how old are you, honey? Seventeen, Phil. Oh, seventeen, huh? Well, uh, why are you acting that way? Uh, how's about it? Oh, no, honey, it's not how's about it. It's, uh, <laughs> let's forget about it, dear. Now it was down when he was playing at the Coconut Grove that Phil Harris first met Jack Benny. They both lived at the ex's house, and they became friendly. Nothing quite came of it. Uh, the Coconut Grove dried up, and as Phil always says, they got on the panic, which means they were out of work. <laughs> So I kept listening to the interviews like, yeah, and then we were on the panic. And I thought, is this a drug I don't know about or what is it? But it's just being unemployed. So he, for the first time, he was a traveling band now with his own band. And they got this gig where they would travel all over in different hotels across the Midwest. They got And while he was doing that, 
he gets a phone call from the George Burns and Gracie Allen show and said, we want you to be the house band. So he begs and begs and he gets out of his contract. And just before they're going to leave, he gets a call from them and said, ah, we decided to go with someone else. So he's stuck. He can't tell the guy, oh, can I have my job back? So he just comes to L.A. and he starts playing. He's playing at uh, one of the other clubs. And they're doing okay. Then he bumps in to Jack Benny again. And Jack Benny, that's when he gets into the show because he's looking for somebody. The Jello sponsors are saying, we need somebody that's more lively than your band leader who will be like a character. He sort of knew how Phil Harris was, so he asked him, hey, are you on any radio shows? He goes, no, I'm just playing around local clubs. He goes, well, you're on mine now, so you're going to start next week. <laughs> Wait a minute, so he was the band leader on the Jack Benny radio show? Yeah. And then, so all that interaction, was that him? Yeah, that, that was he him. created it? No, I mean, you know how they interact with oh, all these band leaders and stuff and different things. Was well, that him? Well, you know what? It might be because I haven't heard anything before that. So he might be like the Tonight Show and how they do that. It might be him. It's like on every show now. He's they interact leader, with yeah. the band leader. You know, I mean, like Jimmy Kimmel. All those guys interact with the band leader. Man, if he created that with Jack Benny... Well, yeah, and the writers, because they wanted a foil. You could you could thank Jello actually, because they're the ones that wanted <laughs> well, to press God for God bless Jello. <laughs> I thank them for more than one. Yeah. Yes, for everything, for Gelatin and Plus. Uh, Phil Harris became very popular on the Jack Benny show. Um, he became the foil they wanted. And uh, Benny would take people and he would, like, exaggerate. He'd see what was in them. And he just pull out more. So he became a very big blowhard. Very that wasn't really Phil Harris though. He was always kind of self-deprecating. One time they asked him, "Oh, you know, how come you gave up drums?" He goes, "Oh, because I heard Gene Krupa." <laughs> and after that, I thought, "What's the point?" So and another time, uh, he used to love Jack Benny because Jack Benny was supposed to be real cheap, but he would always go. Hey, Phil, I, need, I think you need to go ask for some more money. I don't think you're making enough money. And he go, I, all I do is say, uh, how you doing, Mary? And oh, here comes Rochester. Because I don't need any extra money. Go, just go get some more money. <laughs> <laughs> so they, obviously, from that, you can see they had a good relationship. The only thing he actually came up with was when Jell-O stopped being the sponsor, he came up with that da 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 That was that was Phil Harris's contribution. After that, somebody else always did all the tunes and stuff for Dennis Day and all the other characters. And pretty soon, he really just became the character. They used to tour every summer, though, still when they were off of the radio show. But other than that, he was really a radio personality. And we're gonna show you they they always used to make fun of the band and always like saying they were getting all these letters and everyone hated it and it was shitty and, and so we're going to show you an example of that right now something's got to be done about your orchestra <laughs> I don't know what kid but something are you kidding no Phil look I'll admit when we're doing radio shows I joke about your music but now we're in my home just the two of us. Believe me, I'm serious. <laughs> Something has got to be done, or else. Now, wait a minute, Jackson. Don't go getting tough with me. If you got any beefs, talk to Petrillo. I've already talked to Petrillo, and he's on my side. <laughs> Believe me. On your side? How do you like that? You miss your dues one week, and the mother hen starts kicking you out of the nest. <laughs> Look, Phil, after 10 years, I don't mind your band. I'm used to it. 
But listen to these letters I've been getting. Listen to this one. Dear Mr. Benny, I am a poultry farmer. I read in a magazine that music helps the hens lay more eggs. So I put a radio in the hen house. Two weeks ago, I tuned in your program. The hens heard Phil Harris's orchestra. Now they are laying more eggs than ever, but the yolks are green. <laughs> there you are, Phil. What do you think of that? Green yolks? The guy's got something there. You can use them in martinis. <laughs> Please, maestro. Look, here's another one. Now, get this other letter. Dear Mr. Benny... I am a professor of English and literature at Harvard, and for years and years, I have consistently listened to your Sunday presentations. I have found your construction and continuity compact and concise, your dialogue singularly free of cliches and ponderosities. <laughs> but Mr. Harris's musical ensemble stinks. <laughs> and Phil... This proves he's a high-class professor. He spells stinks with a Y. <laughs> now, those two letters are just samples of the mail that comes in. Every week, I get thousands and thousands and thousands of letters like those. Well, if I'm getting all that mail, I want more dough. <laughs> Phil Harris was also... They sort of uh, um, exaggerated him as a womanizer, but I don't know how he was when he was single, but... After he met uh, Alice Faye, who was a star in her own right, they were married in 1941. He pretty much settled down. He stopped doing the summer um, band things. He stayed pretty close to home. Had a lot of parties at his house. He was a funny guy. He was very polite. Maybe he gets that from the South. I'd hear him in different interviews, and he'd always be thanking the guy and saying, hey, I met your wife. She's really nice. You should have her come over. He'd always include, or the people that came with him, hey, you got to talk with this guy or whatever, just the people that showed up with him. And also, whenever they talked about his charities or something, he'd always bring up, well, no, this guy started it, and this guy, Joe, whatever, did this, and I, I just kind of show up, you know? So they became great partners, well, in their marriage, but also in business, because later on they had a show together. But before that, in 1942, Phil Harris and his, his whole band joined the Merchant Marines, and they joined the service for the, for the duration of the war. And they were stationed at Catalina. And Phil was made an officer, and all the band members were made sailors. But Phil let Remley hang out in his bunk, you know, in the officer's thing. So I don't know what they thought with those two guys coming out every morning. Probably thought there was a little funny business going on. But after the war, Phil and Alice were invited to also be on the show that followed the Jack Benny show. And it was the F.W. Fitch Company. And they, they sort of had a variety show with comedy skits. It was Fitch Bandwagon and musical stuff. So they had him on to do a little skit. And people, people liked it. And so they kept going on the show afterwards. And after two years... They gave him their own show, which became like a, a, a big family comedy, which was husband and wife, and they had kids. I forget if Phil Harris had kids right at that point. <clears throat> was but it a variety show? Not for the two years it was, but once it became the Phil Harris and Alice Faye show, it became like a regular family thing, like Father Knows Best. Like Ozzy and Harriet or something. Yeah, but a little kookier. Because, well, yeah, because what they did is they, they wanted to have the Remley character on that. Because all this time on the Jack Benny show, um, 
they'd always talk about Remley and say, well, Remley would did some, you know, he got me in trouble doing this and doing that, but they would never have Remley on. So they asked him, and he said, yeah, you can use my name. So they got another actor to play Remley on the on the their their new show, the, and he would. Um, well, before we go on and talk about that, we should talk a little about Frank, <laughs> Frankie Remley. Um, they were intertwined their whole life, as we see. And um, from the time of the St. Francis Hotel, and when he uh, graduated from being the left-handed uh, guitar player, he was part of everybody's life. Everybody liked him. And Jack Benny used to take him on rides with him, just for company, and he'd take him on vacations with him and his wife. <laughs> so, and... So we flash to the Phil Harris show again, and this character of Remley, unlike the other one who seems like he was trying to get out of trouble that Phil Harris was causing him, this guy would always call Phil Harris problems. He Every kind of thing he would do would get Phil Harris in some other bind, and they became kind of a good comedy team together. And we're going to show you right now uh, an example when uh, Lemley's getting, uh, supposedly getting him free tickets to the <clears throat> circus. Gee, Daddy, I can hardly wait to get to the circus. Well, just be patient, honey. We'll be there soon. Hey, Rumley. Huh? Tell me something. How'd you manage to get these circus tickets for nothing? Well, if you must know, I'm a friend of the manager, and he gave them to me because I did something for him. <laughs> now, what could you do for him that would... Oh, pos Daddy, look at that big billboard about the circus. What does it say? Oh, let's see. Oh, it says, this is the last day to see the biggest show on Earth with wild animals, funny clowns, our famous sideshow featuring the bearded woman... Jojo, the dog-faced boy, Fanny, the fat lady, Pete, the pinhead, and starring for today only, Phil Harris and Alice Payne. <laughs> who give them permission to use... A... Remley. <laughs> Mr. Remley. You talking to me, Jojo? <laughs> You got the free ticket. You got a lot of nerve telling them people that we'll appear in that circus. Oh, Curly, don't get excited. You don't have to appear in any sideshow. Are you sure? I'm positive. All you got to do is let him shoot you out of a cannon. <laughs> You'll be billed as Flying Phil, the curly-headed buzz bomb. <laughs> all I'm supposed to do is let them shoot me out of a cannon? That's all. And it pays well. You get $10 down and two and a half cents a mile traveling expense. You know something? My audit... You can go far on a job like this. Remley, look, why don't you let them stuff you in that cannon? That job's right up your alley. What do you mean? You'll be paid for getting loaded. Well, the Jack Benny show moved to another network. And Phil was still doing the other show afterwards. So Jack started letting Phil cut out halfway through the show. So he'd be in the beginning, and then mysteriously he'd be gone the second half. They'd get all his bits done. And then he'd have to run down the street and go to the other. And then he would warm up the people. He's the warm-up man at his show. And at his own show. Huh? Yeah, and then, he would, then they would do the show. Wow. And it was a, it was a very successful show. Um, but and he did this until 1952. And then he left the Jack Benny show and continued on until 1954 when most of radio ended. And even Jack Benny was completely on television. And radio, Jack Benny used to only play reruns. 
basically. So at first, he didn't know what to do with himself, Phil. He continued to put out singles like he did, but he kind of had to reinvent himself. And he did that as the solo actor that uh, we talked about right now. What we're going to do is play another song, uh, which is the beginning of this, the late 40s. Another big hit by him. Another one he didn't write, but made popular. And uh, he's his own grandpa. I met a guy today I knew years ago when he was 23. And he was married to a widow who was as pretty as could be. Now this widow had a grown-up daughter who had beautiful hair of red. And this guy's father fell in love with her and soon the two were wed. Now this made the guy's dad his son-in-law and changed his very life. For his daughter was his mother cause she was his father's wife. Now to complicate the matter, even though it brought him joy, he soon became the father of a bouncing baby boy. Now his little baby then became a brother-in-law to his dad. And so became his uncle, and though that made him very sad, for if the baby was his uncle, then that also made him brother of the widow's grown-up daughter, who of course was his stepmother. He's his own grandpa. Now you're catching on. He's his own grandpa. Well, naturally, it sounds funny, I know, but really it's so. He's his own grandpa. Well, wait a minute, get a load of this. Now his father's wife then had a son who kept him on the run. So he became his grandchild, for he was his daughter's son. His wife is now his mother's mother, and of course that makes him blue, because although she's his wife, she's his grandmother, too. He's his own grandpa. Fun in the living room. He's his own grandpa. Absolutely. It sounds funny, I know. But really, it's so. He's his own grandpa. Yeah, but look, get the payoff. Now, if his wife is his grandmother, then he is her grandchild. And every time the guy thinks of it, it nearly drives him wild. For now, he has become the strangest case you ever saw. As husband of his grandmother, he's his own grandpa. He's his own grandpa. And loving every minute. He's his own grandpa. Oh, tell me more. It sounds funny, I know. But really, it's so. He's his own grandpa. He's his own grandpa. So now we've kind of come full circle and we've we've come to the point where Fear Harris is a solo performer again and on those variety shows, but we didn't talk about him going on the Jungle Book. He gets this call in the 60s by Walt and saying, hey, we're doing this picture. We'd like you to be part of it. And so he, he didn't know, but they finally convinced him. When he got there, they had a script for him. And he said, you know, the only way this is going to work is I'm going to have to kind of ad-lib. I'm going to do your script, but i got to do it my way. And, of course, that worked perfect, because there we go. He got Blue the Bear with all his jive talk and his energy. Now, is it is it true that that was really the first time that they 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 took a character that was not like just somebody acting as the character that they wrote? They took a person's personality and then put it on there? Because I, I heard that well, before. Well, I don't know if that's the case so much. Of course it is. But it's the first one, I believe, that they used name actors where somebody would know him. All the other one were actors that you wouldn't know. But in that one, everyone knew Phil Harris. Everyone knew um, Louis Prima. And they knew Sebastian Cabot. So it was like having all-star voice stuff. They never liked to do that at Disney. They wanted unknowns. Well, after um, The Jungle Book and all those other 
wonderful cartoon acting jobs he got. He kept doing the shows, uh, the variety shows, but then he started uh, leading a band again. And they used to play in Las Vegas on the same bill with Harry James' old orchestra. And other than that, he used to live out in Palm Springs, loved the desert. That was still there with uh, Bing Crosby and all those guys loved out there. And um, enjoyed his life. There was a couple interviews with him. He always had to come to him. One last thing he did was tail spinners. And uh, the in the contract, they had to pick him up in a limo from Palm Springs and drive him back in L.A. where he'd do the bit. But they they claimed that he didn't have the energy to do it. And maybe he didn't. But maybe they just got sick of thinking. They did it once. And they thought, we're not going to keep driving this guy. So they got to they gotta so look alike. He only did it for the pilot. Yeah. But so Rock-A-Doodle-Doo came out uh, a few years later, and he did that character uh, of the hound dog there. So even though he always claimed that they never found, uh, the government never found a place to bury his liver safely, he did die, after all, of a heart attack in Rancho Mirage. And that was in 1995, on August 11th. And he was buried in the Forest Lawn Cemetery in Cathedral City. But he was a great, well-loved man and a man who loved life. And now you know a little bit about Phil Harris, the man who did Baloo's voice. We're going to go out with another one of his novelty songs, another one of his dark ones, which we really haven't shown those yet, quite a few of those. Um, This one, A Little Bug Is Gonna Get You Someday. Now in these days of indigestion, it oft times comes a question as what to eat and what to leave alone. For each microbe and bacillus all have a different way to kill us and in time they always claim us for their own. Now there are germs of every kind and any food that you can find either in the market or upon the bill of fare. People die from drinking whiskey but drinking water's just as risky and it's oftentimes a bad mistake to breathe the air. Now, the inviting green cucumber that gets most everybody's number, while the green corn has a system of its own. And though a radish seems nutritious, its behavior is quite vicious, and uh, a doctor will be coming to your home. Now, eating lobster cooked or plain is only flirting with tomain, while an oyster sometimes has a lot to say. Oh, but those clams we eat and chowder make the angels chant the louder, for they know that we'll be with them right away. Some little bug is gonna find you someday Some little bug will creep behind you someday And then he'll get right down in your gizzard And if you lose him, you're a wizard Some little bug is gonna find you someday Now take a slice of nice fried onion And then you're fit for Dr. Munion And those apple dumplings are gonna kill you quicker than a train Chew a cheesy midnight rabbit and a grave you'll soon inhabit. Oh, to eat it all is such a foolish game. Now, eating huckleberry pie, that's a pleasing way to die, while sauerkraut brings on softening of the brain. Now, when you eat banana fritters, every undertaker titters, and the casket makers nearly go insane. Oh, when cold storage vaults I visit, I can only say, what is it that makes mortals fill their systems with such stuff? Now for breakfast, prunes are dandy if a stomach pump is handy and your doctor can be found quite soon enough. Just eat a plate of fine pig's knuckles while the grave digger chuckles and also makes a note upon his cuff. And 
fried liver's nice, but mind you, friends will soon ride slow behind you, and then the papers will have such nice things to say. Some little bug is gonna find you someday. Some little bug will creep behind you someday. And then with a nervous little quiver, he'll give you cirrhosis of the liver. Some little bug is gonna find you someday. So, you wanna live forever? And now, pretentious readings from Scholastic Books. Encyclopedia Brown, Boy Detective. The Case of the Scattered Cards. At nine o'clock that night, Encyclopedia climbed into bed. He lay awake a long time. He thought over what his mother had said to him about being a detective when he grew up. In the morning, he had made up his mind. He would go into the detective business and help people. He wouldn't wait until he grew up. It was summer and school was out. He could begin at once. Encyclopedia got out of bed and searched through his closet. He dug out a toy printing press, a Christmas gift from his Uncle Ben two years ago. As soon as Encyclopedia finished breakfast, he printed 50 handbills. When the ink was dry, he put the handbills in all of the mailboxes in the neighborhood. Then he went home and asked his mother for a big piece of cardboard. She gave him a dress box from the Bon Ton store. Encyclopedia borrowed the kitchen shears and cut out a square piece of cardboard. He took a black crayon and carefully lettered a sign. The handbills and the sign said, Brown Detective Agency, 13 Rover Avenue, Leroy Brown, President. No case too small. 25 cents per day plus expenses. Encyclopedia nailed the sign on the door of the Browns' garage. The next morning he sat in the garage, waiting for somebody with a problem to drop in. Nobody dropped in, only the rain. The roof of the garage had a hole in it. Rain fell all morning, all afternoon, and all the next day. Encyclopedia stared at the rain and felt lower than a submarine's bottom. He thought about taking down the side and going to see what new teeth Charlie Stewart had added to his collection. Or maybe digging for worms with Billy and Jody Turner and fishing off a bridge at Mill Creek. Suddenly a pair of rubbers and a raincoat appeared in the doorway. Inside them was a small boy. My name is Clarence Smith, said the boy. I need your help. 
No case is too small, said Encyclopedia. Is it murder? No, said Clarence, backing away. Kidnapping? asked Encyclopedia. Blackmail? No. No, said Clarence weakly. It's a tent. He placed a quarter on the gasoline can beside Encyclopedia. The tent is mine, but the tigers say it's theirs. You are having trouble with talking tigers? asked Encyclopedia. Oh no, replied Clarence. Tigers. That's the name of a boys' club near the canal. The boys are plenty tough, all of them, but their leader, Bugs Meany, is the toughest one. Take me to their leader, commanded Encyclopedia, and to your tent. I'll do both, said Clarence. Bugs Meany is sitting in the tent this very minute. After a short walk, the two boys came to the tent. It stood in the woods between the canal and the Pierce junkyard. Six older boys were sitting around a wooden box inside the tent. They were playing cards. Which one of you is Bugs Meany? Encyclopedia asked. Me, said the biggest and dirtiest boy. What's it to you? You are in my tent, squeaked Clarence. I found it. I mended all the holes in it. Scram, growled Bugs. You know I found the tent in the junkyard, said Clarence. You watched me put it up here last week. Get going, said Bugs. I saw you steal it from our clubhouse this morning. Mind if I come in out of the rain? Encyclopedia asked. As he ducked inside the tent, one of his feet hit an extra pack of cards lying beside the wooden box. The cards were scattered over the ground. Hey, what's the big idea, said Bugs. The idea is a simple one, said the private detective. See these cards? They are dry, not the least bit muddy though I scattered them over the ground. Clarence didn't steal this tent from your clubhouse. Bugs closed his hands into fists. His chin sprang out like the drawer of a cash register. Are you calling me a liar? Of course not, said Encyclopedia. I'm simply going to tell you what I'll tell the police. Encyclopedia spoke quietly into the older boy's right ear. Bugs listened. His face grew red and then redder. Suddenly he called, Come on, tigers. Let's get back to the clubhouse. It's no fun here. When the tigers had left, Clarence said to Encyclopedia, Gosh, what did you say to Bugs? Encyclopedia smiled. 
I pointed out why you couldn't have stolen the tent from the Tiger's Clubhouse. How did Encyclopedia know this? Epilogue, or rather, the solution to the case of the scattered cards. Bugs Meany said that Clarence had stolen the tent from the Tiger's clubhouse, this morning that is, on the second day of the rain. Therefore, the ground under the tent should have been wet. But when Encyclopedia scattered the cards with his foot, he discovered that the ground inside the tent was dry. This proved that the tent had been put up before the rain, as Clarence claimed, and not during the rain this morning as Bug said Thank you for calling J.B. Smith. I will be returning to this telephone number on Tuesday, so please leave a message for me and I will return your call at that time. Thank you. Well, another very sad moment. A message meaning that you will not be away till Tuesday. I don't know, these calls are getting more and more and more expensive. Mr. Smith, it would behold you to stay in your room until you are called either by a major studio, Branson, Missouri, or God. You're missing the most important thing in your life. That is your dear friend and talent, former star, Jonathan Winters. Brighter side, <laughs> two words, who cares? You know, we're only visitors. Bye-bye, and remember the Prince of Darkness is with us 24 hours a day. Regardless of light, the Prince of Darkness can deal with it. Heavy. Uh, Mr. Lamb, need help packing those boxes? Yeah, almost done, Katie. That was some retirement party. You got big plans? Yep. Now that we're 65, the wife and I will get extra $1,000 exemptions. We may qualify for the credit for the elderly, and we may sell our house. See, there's a tax break on the sale of a home when you're 55 or older. Guess it pays to be old. <laughs> Who's old? <laughs> Use the order form in your tax package to get free IRS publication 554, Tax Benefits for Older Americans. Message from the IRS. <laughs> ¶¶
Lies of Clay Martinez, the fabulous stories of an immortal character, with zither music by Anton Karras. That was the shot that killed Clay Martinez. He died in a sewer beneath Vienna. Yes, that was the end of Clay Martinez, but it was not the beginning. Clay Martinez had many lives, and I can recount all of them. How do I know? Don't ask so many questions. Clay Martinez, Hi. actor in stage, film, and television. Stage, screen, uh, television. That's right, a man of many lives. But we're talking today specifically about his perform live performances at amusement parks and uh, cruise ships mm -hmm. and uh, his involvement in the halcyon days of the mega party. <laughs> oh, so, yes. And so. they were. the not... The, <laughs> The, the, the greedy 90s, we remember them all. Ah, the good old days. Yeah, when money Well, flowed. not for me, actually, but... <laughs> mm, all the money flowed because, they're, you know, back... back like in the... fine wine. Mm-hmm, well, well, like wine. Like water, out of mm -hmm. a spigot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they, generally they, they did... Uh, oh, let me in, uh, They did turn on the spigot uh, quite a bit. Because uh, a lot... I mean, given the... What people don't remember back in the 90s, when... The dot-com people and, and all those, and, and companies in general made a lot, a lot of money. And they had a lot of money, extra money to spend, and they wanted to do something with it. And so they would do things like throw these big, lavish parties. Uh, sometimes they would, they would, you know, they would always spend it on, on the venue, excuse me, on, on the venue, but they would also uh, spend it on the food, and then they would... They got to the point where, okay, well, we had a party, we got a venue, we got food, but we want something more to do. So they got, uh, somehow, the party planners got the idea to uh, to populate. Well, why don't we populate the party and get people, basically, to keep the party going and keep it alive? You know, we were hired as literally lives of the party. You know, bring the party did you going. go? Did you go as, like, pretending to be party members sometimes? We have. There have been. There was one... Uh, one job where we were we posed as party uh, people who were uh, members of the party and we mingled and, and discussed and, and you know we were like people thought we were part of the party and then the gag was I don't know why they thought it'd be hysterical for us to uh, basically get into a fight a bunch of us men and women about uh, about three about six six eight of us get into a brawl and then we would all fall into the pool the, the, the <laughs> hotel pool you know and we you know we had suits and you know women had cocktail dresses and stuff and, and then when that was all done did you get up and take a bow or did you just yeah. continue on oh no, okay. you know, no then the, the gag was up okay but obviously we just want to get out of there and, went, ah, and we laughed and we said this was I have no idea, but uh, some uh, yeah, some CEO some CEO thought that would be a funny thing for them to see, uh, fight at their party and 
falling in the pool and all that stuff. But, I mean, you know, and there was others where we were, other parties where we were dressed as just all manner of characters to populate the theme. Oh, okay. Uh, there was one where we were, uh, we were gangsters, you know, the typical you know, Roaring Twenty gangsters, because that was sort of the theme of the party that they had. And we would come out and do a little vignette skit or something but, and mingle and take photos with the crowd. A lot of it was photo opportunity. Oh, yeah. Which was good, but, you know, it's just part of the things that they wanted to, to spice up the party. We were the living backdrop and the life of the party. Basically. I remember you talked talk a little bit about when you were Pavarazzi for that party. Yeah, well, that, that was another thing. We, we, would, <laughs> we would be hired by uh, the CEOs or the hired by the, the, the companies to come in and play these sort of papar- uh, news paparazzi sort of people like at the Oscars and and uh, you know, at, you know, get them to pose for photos with just you know flashes and, and basically uh, treat them like they were important. So we were paid to make people feel important. You said you even had some of their names you could yell out and, and look here, look here, look oh, here. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you said, oh yeah, yeah. Hey, hey, Bob, look over here. Blah, blah, blah. What do you think about this? What do you think about that? Oh, what, what do you think about this? Blah, 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 blah. That's pretty. Fun, Is there any truth to the rumor that you did, Bob? No, we're just. We were, you know, we were news newsmen, and and, uh, and people were taking their photos, and there was gossip columnists and, and things like that. You know, that's what you know. We were made there to make people feel important. You did a haunted house now yeah. before. How much did they pay those people to build that haunted house? You said it was very simple. Well, what uh, was that? I, that I don't know what how much it was. I don't remember. Because I thought you said it was around ten, twenty thousand dollars. Uh, it might have been more. I think it was, but but that was that was just for that set. No, I know. Yeah, that was. Just That's for what that I meant. Set. That's just an example of how much this stuff yeah. cost. And, is what and, I and, to and it was it built. It was built on. Uh, it was somebody's house, an actual house, out in the Pacific Palisades. Uh, so was that in their yard or? Oh well, it was in their driveway. Okay. And you know, the, the idea was that the. I guess when they arrived, they'd have to go through the haunted house, and then at, after that, they would go through, into the party. Uh, there was one, I remember there was one really, really huge party that we did for a car company, which I won't mention. They were in Los Angeles having a big uh, convention thing for their company, and it was a big, big, big deal. And they, uh, they would have a, they were going to be there for like four days. Uh, they rented the back lot of Universal Studios. Oh, wow. The entire back lot, you know, and they had like New York Street, they had like a Medieval Street, they had like a Western Street, they had, you know, had these different venues, and the people would come to the party, and they would, they had it worked out with Universal Studios, they would, you know, park or whatever, and then they would put them on a tram, and it would take them, the trams would go to these different areas, uh, Western New York, and not unlike the movie Westworld, exactly. But we were it's like Court of Miracles, though. very much. Yeah. yeah, and Court of Miracles. But they, uh, we were hired uh, to dress up and be uh, the party, the people you know who existed oh, in the now which, in this atmosphere. Which area were you in? I was in the New York area. 
uh, different, you know, in the different facades, you could go into the building. There was a delicatessen. You could get delicatessen type foods. You had a delicatessen owner. Uh, they had streetcar vendors, and I mean, it was a That's huge, gigantic. It was, and it was a four-day party. Oh my goodness! Four days every night, we would be there, populating the streets of Universal Studios, and people would come through, and you know, they would. Yeah, I think there was four different venues. I forgot what the other one was, but the idea was that you could spend, you know, one evening at different. You know, at different areas, and that's how long the party went. I remember when we were shooting the Grinch. Mm. When, didn't they do a party then? It was for somebody on the back lot. They might have. I don't remember that, but there was one party. Uh, I remember they had for the musical people. They had Paul Revere and the Raiders. Wow. Uh, oh. They were the musical thing. Mm. And then there was another party that I went to. This was probably the biggest example. They took a an airport an airplane hangar converted it into a nightclub. They literally draped things and dressed it and made it look and brought in flooring and everything and turned it into an old nightclub, which was really, really cool. They hired us to be statues, living statues. And then afterwards, they, they you know, when we were finishing, we were at the cocktail hour doing those statues and stuff. They said, well, you can get cleaned up and stick around if you want, you can watch the band play. Well, the band at the time, uh, they had the Eagles, <laughs> literally the Eagles. What was the comment they made? They said, <laughs> "Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember." They opened with Hotel California, of course, and uh, after they finished that, they went into another song. And as they were getting going into the other song, they said that uh, Glenn Fry goes, "You guys must have been really good this year because we don't play cheap." <laughs> And then they, they continued on and played uh, their, their Hell Freezes over to it. It was very impressive. Any other interesting stories about the big party business? Well, there was one that was kind of fun. We, well, there were many, actually. But uh, one that comes to mind was a friend of mine one time. He had, a, uh, he had an interesting bout one time where he had to go away and he was going to be a pick. Uh, uh, you know, they paid for us to be at these parties to be these clever little characters and this character they wanted for some reason it was a pickpocket even though I, I don't think he even knew how to pick some real pocket but it was sort of a, that sort of take on it but he uh, what he did is he went and got uh, an old-fashioned he got a trench coat and, and he pinned all sorts of little scarves and and watches and jewelry and you know, all manner of things and wallets to the inside so that he would open, you know, he, would, he could open his, his, his uh, coat, his big trench coat and open it and it would look like he had all these things that he had taken and uh, that he could, could, you know, offer to sell to people or, and, and fence, but was, the idea was that he was the pickpocket. Well, one day, uh, when he was going to the gig, he uh, he got he was driving a little too quickly, uh, and a police officer you know, pulled him over. So when the police officer you know ran his license, he came back to him and said, "Look, I got to take you in. There's a warrant out for you because of all these unpaid uh, parking tickets." He started doing some really fast talking, and he just basically told him, "Look, if you you know if you take me in." Uh, and he, he showed him, he, he got out because he was outside of the car at the time. He said, 
you take me in, you're going to have to log in all of this. And then he opens his coat and shows the officer all these wallets and watches and rings and scarves and things like that all pinned on the inside of his coat. You know, there was a hundred. And the cop just went, ah, God. Because he knew if he took him in, he would have to log in every single one of these items. So the policeman looked at him and just went, well, okay, I'll tell you what, make a deal. I'm going to let you go, but you promise, he says, turn yourself in and get these tickets fixed. And he says, yes, I promise. He says, you promise me you'll, you'll do that this week, okay? He says, yeah, 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 I swear I will. You don't. I'm looking for him. I said, okay. So, uh, so what he did was he uh, he did you know he went and did the gig and then uh, uh, gave me a call uh, a couple of days later and told me to to come and pick him up because he's going to be bailed out of this uh, police station. So he had to turn himself in. And as smart as he was, he actually he turned himself in to the Beverly Hills Police Station. That's where he turned himself in to parking violations and stuff. And so they put him in a, a cell overnight or, or during the day until he made bail and other stuff. And he came back and told me the story. You know what? That is the cleanest police uh, 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 jail I've ever seen. He said it was clean. There was hardly any. There was no, nobody there. He had the place to himself. He said, and it was so clean. He said. If you ever need, if you ever need to turn yourself in, turn yourself in to the Beverly Hills Police Department. It's a lot better than county. Now, you were talking earlier about Universal Studios. You worked there for quite a few years. Yes, yes. The same thing as a live performer around the park. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Universal Studios uh, was, uh, was a lot of fun. In the early days, it was even more fun because we, we had, as characters, we had a little more... It was a, the character department was more um, freer and open to experimentation, and it was smaller. There was two guys and a, and a secretary in a trailer that was our boss. Uh, of course, over the years, as Universal got more and more complex, they expanded. They added more bosses, more trailers, and now they have like an entire building of, of bosses to tell you what to do. But uh, it was more fun in the early days because we were we could do all manner of things to to, to go out and experiment and see how we could you know, interact best with guests. You got to know uh, people and um, and it really was as as an an actor or a performer it was really good because you got to really you could see people you could work with people you know. How to work with people because there are some people that want to play, some people who don't want to play. Yeah. And you got to know, you got to, you could size up people real quick. You could look at people and go, oh, he's gonna have a lot of fun. Oh, we gotta stay away from this guy. This guy's <laughs> this guy seems like a lot of trouble. And so you'd stay away from them. But you know, that was as a performer, that was really, really good. What was the story about the guy that was kicking you with his son? Oh god, oh god. I was a uh, I was WC Fields at the park and uh, we had to <laughs> we had to walk <clears throat> from uh, to go to our back to our dressing room in between our sets and stuff and I was finishing up the day and I was walking back to um, the dressing room 
<clears throat> and you have to stay in character, my dear. And uh, uh, as I was walking, some uh, older gentleman, obviously a grandfather type of a person, and he had his little grandson who was maybe six, five or six years old with him, and he brought him up to me. And, you know, some of you go, oh, yeah, he wants to introduce a little kid to you know, somebody he knew as you know, favorite when he was younger, blah, 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 blah. And so I was like, oh, okay, here we go. And I'm staying in character. And he brought him up to me, and he stood in front of me. And then the, the old man started kicking me in the shin, started kicking me over and over in the shin. And I'm looking at him like, what the heck are you doing? And he's telling the little boy, go ahead and kick him. Go ahead. He's not real. And he's smi- the old man's smiling at me like I'm in on some joke as he's kicking me in the <laughs> shin, telling the little boy to kick, his grandson to kick me too. Uh, people have a tendency to not think of us as being real. Uh, but we do. You, know, you, you prick us, do we not bleed? Of course. You guys all had different kinds of defenses. What was your friend in the vampire suit, the Dracula? What did he do there? Uh, I shouldn't say that, but okay. Uh, <laughs> you know, everybody had their own little defense mechanisms that, you know, you could help protect yourself. And uh, one, uh, I carried a big cane, uh, which was good. I didn't use it to hit anybody. I never hit anybody. <laughs> but, you know, it's, you know, if you ever wanted to hold somebody off, it sure came in handy. Uh, you know, so that's when you, that, but that's, you know, that's an extreme case where you're in trouble or somebody, you know, is going to beat on you or do something. Uh, but uh, my friend, he was, uh, he was Dracula in the theme park and he had his cape and his cape was really big and really heavy. And he could do, you know, he could literally just, you know, he got really good with it. Like he could whip it around like a, like, like, you know, Linus and he, with his blanket, you know, he was really good at, you know, doing all sorts of little tricks and things with it, and he would be able to use that to help get in and out of trouble. You, what, there were the two types of characters, they were the, uh, what do they call them? The f- there was the, the face characters, which we were, we were more of the celebrities and, you know, the characters who wore makeup or they, you know, you saw our faces and we interact and we could speak and interact directly with the guests. Uh, and stuff, and then there were the fuzzies, the, f- the, f- the fuzzy characters. Well, actually, the, f- the oh, let me think about three. It. There yeah. are three actually, because the 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 costume characters are the ones that wear, uh, or the ones that wore heads. Woody Woodpecker and things like that, Andy Panda and those guys. Uh, they were referred to as the fuzzies or the furries, fuzzies. And then there was an offshoot of them. There was another one who were more of the monsters, like Frankenstein, the Wolfman, the Mummy, Phantom of the Opera and stuff. And those we called Rubberheads because they all wore rubber masks. And so we called them Rubberheads. And uh, those were the, that was the offshoot of that. Uh, the face characters were... Actually, we got paid more as face characters because we actually had to act uh, verbally and and had to really, you know, be more of an acting thing. You know, the fuzzies and the and the uh, and the, uh, the the rubberheads. Those guys, they were more of a mimist because they didn't, they couldn't speak because they had, you know, oh, yeah. masks. Oh So they had to do more body language and stuff. Uh, but either, in either case, uh, you know, everybody, you know, everybody got really good at, at what they could do. You did W. C. Fields and you did. Uh, did you do Oliver Hardy? 
did Oliver Hardy. And then you developed your own character for them. Yeah, I thought of, a, of a, another face kind of a character that I thought would be fun, and it was Quasimodo. And uh, I did it as a makeup. Uh, I figured out a, a way to do an eye that, you know, I didn't have to put a prosthetic eye in all the time. And, uh, and did the makeup. And it was, uh, it became more startling to people than I thought. Because more people thought of like the Quasimodo character, you know, as a mask or whatever. In fact, they even tried doing it as a mask once and it didn't work out. Uh, it didn't have the, the impact. Uh, but they, uh, they, what had happened was uh, it startled people because they realized I was, I was real and I was moving. <laughs> My face was moving. I could talk. And I, well, I didn't speak, but. You know, I could actually, it was like, oh, this is a little, this is kind of real. People don't know how to take that somewhere. But then, you know, once again, you figured out how to make fun and have fun with it and stuff. And uh, people generally, they thought it was pretty cool. When, when I first developed it and I wanted to show it to my, my boss, my boss said, yeah, let's see, let's, let's see how it works. Why don't you, you know, make, make yourself up, get dressed up, uh, come over to the office, and then I'll, I'll go out and then... You and I will go out and we'll see how you how you do, you know, how the, the public, how you fare with the public. And I was like, oh, okay. So I got all made up and stuff, and I got made up in the dressing room and stuff. Now, the dressing room that I was at was on one side of the, of the park, and the offices were in the central area of the park, in the French, the, the French area, streets area. So I had to walk all that way across, and, you know, you can't, the whole thing is you have to be in character. So what I did was I, you know, got dressed up, made up. I went out in the park and worked my way over to get, you know, warmed up and you know get the feel of it, how it's gonna, how to best interact with the, with the, uh, the guests and stuff. And I worked my way over. And when I got up, when I finally got to the offices, and I went upstairs. And as soon as I got up there, the secretary looked at me and she went, "We've had four calls on you." There you are. We've had four calls from security on you. And I said, security? What? <coughs> security? What, what, what did I do? She said, nothing. They, they wanted to know if you, were, if you were real or whether you were working in the park. They weren't sure. <laughs> and, well, that was a good compliment. I guess. Well, I, <laughs> I took it as a compliment. And, uh, and it was sort of, uh, it was interesting. And then I went out in the park and they, they, they liked it. And so they would bring it back every once in a while. Some more character that they like to have you to see. You know, after a while, you got to develop your own little routines and things like that. Uh, with WC Fields, uh, I developed a three-card Monty game. I would play every once in a while in the morning to, to get things going. Rather than you know, it was kind of slow, but you would you would do something to bring, get, you know, kind of make a bit of a show, something to do. Uh, and you had bits and things that you worked out. Uh, with Quasimodo, he was different, and I had to figure a way to interact with guests, and it was more for something that was more pleasurable to watch from a distance, as well as being part of it. And what it was, was you would, you know, I would just, uh, the Quasimodo, I figured, was a, was a deaf mute, you know, the one that Charles Lawton played was pretty much deaf mute. And didn't say anything. He couldn't say anything, and he couldn't hear or whatever. So I would just wander around, skulking, if you were, and scampering and 
and all this stuff around around within the guests and you know you would it would startle them every once in a while because they'd be like oh what the hell is this uh, but then I would pick up, you know, I'd find something on the ground or something, something like a bit of string or, or a feather or a flower or whatever, and I'd just grab it, and I would just offer it to people, and you just, you just give it to them, and then they would look at it, and they'd be like, what the hell is this, and, you know, they'd expect me to say anything, but I wouldn't say anything, and they'd be like, what, and then I'd just take it back, uh, but the, uh, there was one, <laughs> Uh, one thing you were talking about was this German. There were these two German girls, girls from Germany, and they were. Uh, and I had this bit of string, and I, and I just walked up to them, and they, they looked at me, and I, and I gave it, gave this girl a bit of string, and she looked at it and went, "How cryptic!" And then she was like, "These Americans, they are so, they are so creative." <laughs> and I, and then I just. And then I took the string back and walked away. <laughs> and they were, they were quite... Uh, That's wonderful. Yeah, they thought... Yeah, I was like, oh, cryptic. Yeah. yeah, I guess so. What's the Peter Fox story? The Peter Fox story. Oh, God. Another... Uh, that, unfortunately... Uh, let's see. It was a friend of mine who was... Um, who played Doc Brown. And he was a bit of a movie aficionado. And we all liked the same movie. And we were walking down the street... Walking down by the... Uh, by the commissary area, going back to, to going back to our dressing rooms and stuff, and he goes and he sees the you know all the trailers and dressing rooms of people. As we're walking, we're walking past this one trailer. We saw it said Peter Falk, and without even thinking about it, my friend he shouted out the 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 line from the Great Race. He goes, "Push the button, Max." And of course, it was Peter Falk who had said, who was played Max. And then, not thinking, you know, after he says, push the button, Max, somebody from inside the trailer went, okay, Professor! <laughs> and it was Peter Falk! It's funny. Never saw him, but you just heard him say it. It was like, it made our day. It was brilliant, That's awesome. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Now, what was it like on the cruise ships? Because was mm. this through Universal that you went on the cruise ships? Yes, yeah, yeah. There was a. Once again, more of the, the hedonism years. Uh, it was back when Disney started their own cruise line, the Big Red Boat, and they were starting to do that thing. And Universal thought, wanting to copy Disney, of course, they thought, well, let's do, you know, we should have our own cruise line. So they, uh, they partnered up with the Norwegian Cruise Line people. And we did uh, we did some cruises with them, and we would pop, you know, we would go out with as characters, and uh, literally we'd be on the ship for like about a week or so, uh, and do uh, do the characters uh, to meet and greet and to mingle with the guests uh, during certain times of the day, or you know, when they're waiting, lining up to 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 go out on a boat, you know, to go out on a. Uh, boat to go to shore or something like that that's you know, we'd work the lines to help you know keep people amused and occasionally we would do a show there would be like a little show or something we would do with laurel and hardy we did the laurel and hardy magic show and uh with uh just with other characters and somebody just take photo ops and stuff and it was fun you told me before that you did some gigs outside of the u.s too yeah yeah in fact uh well there are parties all over the world um yeah, there. Uh, this one party. Uh, every once in a while, we'll get a gig 
uh, out of state uh, in this sometimes even out of the country and in this case this was one where we were contacted to do the Laurel and Hardy magic show for this one uh, this one party down in uh, Panama Panama City no less which was an interesting uh, place uh, they uh, they, they brought us in, you know, shipped us in and put us up, and it was really, really nice. It was very, very nice. And they they ended up, uh, you know, we, he took us, he was a nice host, took us all around and and uh, and all of that, and and that was lovely. Uh, he, uh, they took us there, and, and at one point, uh, they took us out to dinner, and, you know, took us to a nice place there, and he showed us, he said, you know, there's, we were saying, you know, we were started talking about the, the Noriega thing, and which wasn't too far, you know, was at the time wasn't too far long gone. And he mentioned that, uh, he said, oh, really? And then he goes, you know, now don't everybody look up at once, but there's this man right over there seated about uh, just behind you, behind us. Uh, He's the man in the red shirt. He was Noriega's right-hand man when, uh, when everything went down. And we were like, of course, we all looked at it once. Uh, but anyway, uh, so then afterwards, we, we, uh, we got dressed and we went to the party. And it turned out, you know, because everything is very well guarded there. And it's a, it's a big, it was a nice, uh, a nice condominium uh, tower building overlooking the ocean right by the ocean and uh, it was like really really nice and I was like wow this is pretty swank for this guy but I guess he had money because he shipped us in all the way from from the US into Panama and putting us up and then uh, we came in and as it turned out I guess uh, his father whose birthday it was was he was a big fan of Laurel and Artie so it was like oh great we went over really well and then we started meeting the guests all the guests and uh you know, it was like, uh, what do you, uh, you know, what do you do? And he says, oh, I'm in uh, imports. Oh, oh, great. And we started mingling with the guests and started talking to them. Where are you from? And each one of them had a, had a very similar reply. Where are you from? Brooklyn. Where are you from? New York. Where are you from? Chicago. Where are you from? The Bronx. Queens. Like, Wow, all these guys were like New York kind of mobster guys, and that's when it dawned on us. This guy is into imports, whatever falls off the boats, <laughs> uh, what have you. We're doing a party for the mob. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, and of course, the party went off very well, and uh, we got thanked and we uh, shuffled off and got the heck out of there and made our, made our way back to the U.S. You paid very well. Oh yeah, we were paid very well and we were glad. Uh, I was so glad to come back to the U.S. because you know it's very uh, visiting a, a kind of a third world country. You do tend to appreciate coming coming home to a nice place. We're almost out of time, but oh. I want to talk a little bit about uh, in the early days. In yeah. high school, you talked about having a great experience with drama <laughs> in the high school year. Talk a little bit about that and about the children's uh, um, plays you put on and, uh, and the one that you directed. Oh, okay. There was one... Uh, Just a general start. Gen okay, generally, in the high school we went that I went to, 
for some reason, the, the, the teacher was really, he was a really good administrator and good planner and stuff. His whole theory about teaching drama uh, to us was you give us op- given opportunity, given the opportunity, they will learn. So his whole thing was geared toward giving people lots and lots and lots of things to do. So we always had something going on. Uh, you know, we had uh, four. We had four major. We had this really big stage auditorium that we would use for four main stage plays. We did a comedy in the. Uh, in the fall, then in the uh, winter, you know, Christmas time, we did a, a musical. Uh, then when we came back in, spring, in early spring, late fall, we would do another big main stage musical. Uh, and then we would do, uh, then toward the end, we would do, or the final quarter, we would do a drama. And... Uh, main stage drama and stuff so we got there was a lot of opportunity there plus in the classrooms we also had more opportunity uh, this was uh, the other stuff you know the main stage stuff was after school but during school when we were in advanced theater we had the opportunities to do uh, to get together one act plays that we would do a night of one act plays and we would also do uh, we would also do children's theater which we would take, uh, we would do and rehearse and create a little short children's theater, maybe 25, 30 minutes long. And all this stuff was produced by the students. And you literally, it, it was good in that respect because it taught us how to produce our own show. It produ- you know, not only you had, you had to organize and get the scripts and things like that, then you also had to go out and organize and hold the auditions. Then you also had to do rehearsals and direct and then you also had to work out with somebody else in one of the other stagecraft classrooms to build your set and your set had to be transportable for the children's theater because we had uh, one day there was always one day at the end of that semester or quarter that we would tour and they he worked it out the teacher worked it out with the school system that we would tour as a high school unit we would all jump. You know, we, uh, we would all go from class, from elementary school to elementary school to elementary school, and we would usually have like four, or actually like five, five different elementary schools that we would have to go through that day. And we would literally, we all met in the morning, put our makeup on, got dressed in our costumes. We all piled into these various cars. We decided who would drive and stuff loaded up the set pieces in, in, in some guy's truck, one of the guy's trucks, and then we would all go to the first location, which is the first elementary school. We would all unload, set up the set, work out any blocking, because every stage was different, and then we would, we would, then they would bring the students in, we would do the show for a half an hour, meet and greet, they would leave, we would pack up everything back up, put it back in the trucks, get back in the cars, and go to the next school and do the whole thing again and of course our reward was getting out of school for one day and uh, uh, and we always brought extra money because we knew we were going to go to Shakey's and have lunch at Shakey's and that was always fun. You said that in, a, in The Good Man Charlie Brown, which you're the one, that you did that one. Yeah, I did. I directed it. Yeah, you one said you got to one place where there was no wings at all and everyone had to stay behind the big doghouse. Oh yeah, yeah. I did a, a production of You're a Good Man Charlie Brown and I 
Uh, this was a long time ago. Too. Well, it was high school. This was high school. This was, well, for me, back in the 70s, <coughs> mid, mid-70s, mid and uh, I, I saw your good man Charlie Brown perform once. I thought it was really cool, but there wasn't many kids in it, or wasn't many parts in it, so I expanded the parts. I added Lucy. I was the first to add Lucy, and I took some old co- uh, Peanuts comics that I liked, too, and I added those onto it. And I added Lucy, and I also added another girl who was sort of the Peppermint Patty slash Violet slash Supernumerary character. Uh, and I also added uh, Pigpen? I don't remember. But anyway, we, we, we mixed and matched other cartoons and stuff. And we had to make the, the set traveling, and the guy who, uh, who was playing Snoopy was like six feet tall. So I had to have a big six foot wide or long doghouse for him to sit to lay down on and we just had cubicles so it was the, you know little cubes and things to, to set around for staging and it was very minimal except for the doghouse we had to make this big huge doghouse we made it out of flats and made it hollow so we could transport it easy and uh, at one point we got to a theater uh, in elementary school it was like the last one and we got in, we loaded it, we, we went out the stage and we realized there were no wings and there were no wings, no places to go off stage with. And we were like, uh, how do we do this? Because we had to restage each each time. And I was like, how do we do this? And we we're like, uh, and I went, okay, you know, all this is is entrances and exits. That's all we do all the, you know, for the entire show. So I said, okay, luckily we have the big doghouse. So I said, everybody you go into the doghouse. Everybody goes into the doghouse and you enter and exit from behind the doghouse. So it looked like everybody was coming around from the doghouse <laughs> doing their bit and then coming back around and going, you know, and going back behind the doghouse and disappear. And then the next group of people would come out and do their bits and stuff and they would do that. I can stuff. imagine everybody crowded behind that darn doghouse. Yeah, the whole time. <laughs> yeah, luckily we had the foresight of making it hollow so everybody was all crammed in <laughs> and you know, we were all friends and everything, so it was good. Everybody was all crammed in and be people like, "Oh, yeah, I got an interest." And they would work their way back and they would go, okay. And then they would go out and do the thing and they would all come back and everybody knew the show well enough that they could work around it and stuff. Oh, it was cool. it was a lot of fun. That was those are really and it taught it taught us touring theater. Yeah. Which was odd. Uh, which was pretty advanced. Uh, we had one friend of mine, he said when I told him, described to him what our our theater was like back in high school, and this was also we also did tournaments and things like that as well he was like did you go to like a magnet school for this for performing arts and i was like no no we didn't we didn't not at all he's just uh it's just the the teacher he was good at organizing and he also organized uh, another really really cool thing we had a we had some uh, the the royal shakespeare company was touring in an odd sort of way they were going to riverside which is where, <laughs> where i grew up in Riverside, California. They just happened to be going through Riverside, California, the Royal Shakespeare Company. And he talked a few of them into coming over and giving us a workshop uh, while they were there. They said they'd be glad to. And so uh, one of the gentlemen who gave us a voice, uh, voice lessons, he gave us a voice lesson. He had a very big, robust voice, huge and very neat sounding. And we were like, wow, he's really cool. It was uh, Mr. Patrick Stewart from uh, X-Men and 
I think before that, but this was before he was even out, before when he was still with the Royal Shakespeare Company, early on. He gave us voice lessons and workshop. And then another gentleman, you know, taking questions and answers with us and teaching us things, he gave us a reading of Hamlet. This was some little balding guy, and I'm like, oh, he's pretty good. And as it turned out, that was Ben Kingsley. <laughs> so we actually had lessons and given, you know, pointers from Ben Kingsley and Patrick Stewart early on in their careers. It was, it was really yeah, cool. Really so, but yeah, it was it was a good time to be in the in that particular theater and you learned a lot and you know, of course, you know, if you if you knew a lot or you, you aspired to it, you learned a lot because you were always doing something and striving to be creative and all, and all uh, the whole time. If you didn't or you were just not really that interested in it, eh, you just took it as a lot of fun. Well, now we got past time. Oh my so gosh, we well, have to get out of here. But well, we can always return. To home. We can always <laughs> return to this. Yes, we can. We can speak about the many other lives. The many, besides even acting, we can go to the, the mythic adventures of Clay Martin. Yes, and or the not only the acting, but we go to make the things. So thank you very much. You're welcome. And we'll have to talk to you another time. All right. Well, we'll see you later.
So gloomy. After all, it's not that awful. But what the fella said, in Italy for 30 years under the Borgias, they had warfare, terror, murder, and bloodshed, but they produced Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, and the Renaissance. In Switzerland, they had brotherly love. They had 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Almost everyone loves a good movie, but what exactly constitutes a good movie is different for all of us. Movie tastes are as unique as the people that have them. What your old buddy Jimmy Sweets likes is a good movie ending. That'll take a mediocre movie from me and make it into a great film. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about movie endings, because that's one of my favorite things about movies in general. And uh, so today we have this great thing where we're all going to talk about our favorite movie endings. So uh, who starts? I'll start off with... Uh, with uh, Four Rooms. So if, for people that, that uh, don't know what Four Rooms is, it's an, an anthology and there's four different stories and they're interwoven with uh, Tim Roth being a bellhop. They're all at a, at a hotel and uh, there's four different stories and they're directed by four different uh, directors. Uh, the ending is the one, uh, is the story that's directed by Tarantino. And uh, his story revolves around a Alfred Hitchcock presents film. I mean, uh, uh, Alfred Hitchcock presents oh, the TV, uh, show. TV yeah. show episode where uh, Steve McQueen uh, bets a guy he can he can use his lighter ten times in a row and it'll make a flame, and he bets the the guy's car and Steve McQueen bets his finger. 
Oh yeah. So that and then that was with Peter so, Laurie. So that's yeah. So that's Peter Laurie and them. So that it's all based on that. So they even reference that story. And anyways, they they get Tim Roth to be the Hatchet Man. It's it's Bruce Willis. It's Tarantino himself in there, and and then and another gentleman. And they're all uh, they're all gonna bet. They make the bet. The one guy's rich. He bets you know his super fancy car. It's like a million dollar car. And and uh, so he bets the car, and the other guy bets a finger, and. Uh, most of the stories about Tim Roth um, getting talked into being able to cut oh, this guy's finger off. Oh, he's going to be the chopping He's going to chop He's pretty reluctant. He's... So he's pretty reluctant, and they, uh, you know, they talk. They talk. Tarantino finally talks him into it, and so it's almost the end of the movie. Talks him into it. He gets ready. They they put his finger down, and he's ready to use his lighter. And sure enough, the first time he puts his, he, he tries to use his lighter, no flame. And uh, Tim Roth immediately, boom, chops his finger, <laughs> chops his finger off, and and scoops up the money and just runs out. And everybody's, oh, it's all crazy. <laughs> and the They're credits roll. Trying to put movie on ice, you know, put trying to put the thing on ice, and that is and, cool. Uh, it uh, it was just for the 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 sheer shock of the of the of how you know, quickly, the quickly did it. it did it, and and his expression, and how yeah, quickly he's. Scooped up the money and uh, and the and the jaunty music they play at the end is just I just loved it. That was a good ending. It's so clean too. When what before you even know what's going on with the lighter, the guy's fingers off. Whack! Yeah, you know, <laughs> it's like boom, and you're like, oh, did it go? Did it not? Oh, it didn't go. Boom, his fingers <laughs> off. You know, so it's 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 pretty fun. It's a great very one. good yeah. James. It's a good ending. Well, I'll go next, and uh, mine's the ending of the original Italian Job. Um, it's a great British caper film. It came out in '69, the old one. And it's got a great cast. It has Michael Caine, Noel Coward. It has Benny Hill as this math professor. Oh. Um, he was awesome. He's like, I think this is only one of two movies. The other one's Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Uh, they have, one of the weird things about the, the movie is they wanted to shoot in Turin and have this uh, traffic jam scene, and the city wouldn't give them a permit. So somehow the local mob got involved, and they set up blockades. <laughs> so in the film, when you see all the people mad and angry, that's they really are because they caused a traffic jam and everything. But the ending is they were successful at getting the gold. That's the whole movie, getting gold from the mafia. That's so weird. The mafia helped them make a movie about being robbing them. Uh, and they're stuck in this bus hanging off the end of a cliff. And it's teetering. And the gold is shoved towards the back more of the bus. And they're in the front. And every time they try to crawl <clears throat> to the back of the bus, and just even one of them, the gold slides a little bit. And it teeters even more. And they don't know what they're going to do. And he goes, you can't go out the front or the whole bus will go out before the guy gets there. So you're sitting there and they're all staring at each other. And then Michael Caine just says, hang on a minute, lads. I got a great idea. And that the movie ends. <laughs> they pull out, out of the camera and you see the teetering. And, it, and there's the Alps and everything around it. And they go away and play their theme music. And that's the end of the movie. <laughs> so that was very snappy. They were supposed to have a um, sequel. Uh, they decided at several endings and decided, let's just do this one because we the other endings were too stupid. We can't figure out how they would get out. So anyway, that's mine. I love that. Sometimes ending. that's the best. One of my favorite movies, and correct me if I if I uh, went about this the wrong way, but <clears throat> Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull. I've never <laughs> been more happy for a movie to end than when that movie got over. Oh, did I did I get did I mix that up? So. 
one of my favorite endings is a movie called The Orphan, and I, I really didn't know how I felt about it. It stars uh, Isabel Fruman, and she's a uh, clove in The Hunger Games. And so she plays a nine-year-old, what she's supposed to be, a nine-year-old Russian girl that gets adopted by Kate and John Coleman. And that Kate and John Coleman are experiencing strains in their marriage after their third child was stillborn. And, of course, like most marriages, the woman is a drunk and has a recovering from <laughs> alcoholism. And so then they decide to adopt this nine-year-old. They have a, Kate and John have a, a deaf-mute daughter named Max, and they also have a, a son, Daniel, who's a little bit older. And Daniel isn't very welcoming to this nine-year-old. And so uh, we kind of speed to the middle, and Kate finds uh, the girl's hidden Bible, and she discovers that she came from the Serene Institute in Estonesia. So she sends out an email and reaches out to this hospital, and the ending is great when she, through a different certain uh, circumstances, she's not at the home, but the doctor reaches out to, outs to her and says, "That is not a nine-year-old. It's a she's a thirty-three-year-old, <laughs> and she has this rare disease that keeps her from growing old, and she's uh, crazy." And so she realizes her husband is alone with this with this thirty-three-year-old uh, psychotic. And as she's saying this. The girl's kind of taking off some makeup, and she has this really uh, crazy, like teeth. And now you just get afraid. It's just and so it, that's awesome. It was, it was it was a fun movie. I never even heard of that movie. That's great. Yeah, The Orphan. I, All right, I'm gonna have to check that out. When you said that, I was like, oh man, she's a <laughs> she's an adult. Yeah. <laughs> I remember that. James, what's your next um, one? So my next one is uh, is Swingers. Uh, that was uh, came out in 1996. Oh, uh, Vince Vaughn. Uh, you know, does a tour de force, and and John Favreau, their 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 first big film, right? They're, they they both star in it. Uh, John Favreau wrote it, and uh, so it's just a a collection of of uh, basically these guys going around to different watering holes in in L.A. during the swing swing revival, and and uh, it's fun, and they're you know trying to date one one guy's heartbroken, he's trying to recover from it, and and. Uh, at the end, there's going to be uh, this great thing. Maybe you're going to learn. Uh, and he's like, uh, you, you know, John and and uh, and Vince Vaughn go to a diner and they're sitting there. And uh, he's like, you know, the one thing that I've learned through this whole thing, he's about to tell him. And uh, Vince Vaughn gets distracted by a beautiful woman. And uh, he, he starts making eyes with her. And she starts making eyes back. So you think... But it, it, inevitably, you find out that she's actually just making eyes at a baby across from the thing. <laughs> and, and so uh, the, the, the thing that I love about this is that it's the ending without an ending, right? Because they were going to say, oh, we're going to have this great thing. We're going to learn this moral. He's learned something from the whole thing. And he's like, nope. It doesn't matter. <laughs> and uh, that's I have to see it again because I don't remember that ending. I remember, I think, a couple endings before that is where I remember. Yeah, he's like, hey, you know what I really... He says something to the effect of, you know what I got from this whole thing or whatever, and then he gets interrupted and they never tell that's you. beautiful. <laughs> i got to watch that movie again. Uh, well, my next one is the end of Love Actually, but it's not the ending uh, of the whole movie. Because that movie is made up of multiple storylines and each one showing a different kind of love. And my favorite uh, is the storyline that follows Billy Mack, who's an aging, almost washed up kind of rock and roll legend. And he's played by um, Bill Nye. 
and he's wonderful. Uh, you know him from Hot Fuzz, and he was Slaughty Bardfars in Hitchhiker's Guide. He was in Shaun of the Dead, and I love that character. Remember, he was he was doing a, a Christmas song out of another song, like "Love is all around you, I feel it in my toes," or, or whatever. So it's the end of the movie, and um, it's Christmas, and the, the actual the album made number one, and so he's a hit, and he's over at Elton John's party, and then you see him uh, wind up at his uh, manager, Joe, who's played by uh, Gregor Fisher. Uh, he was with it, 1984 and Without a Clue. So he goes over there on Christmas Eve, and uh, um, he comes to the apartment, and, and he's like, what are you doing here? And he goes, I left Elton John where there was a hefty number of half-naked chicks in order to hang out with you. And uh, Bill's going, well, uh, he doesn't know what to say. He goes, it's a terrible, terrible mistake, Chubbs, but you turn out to be the love of my life. And to be honest, despite all my complaints, we have had a wonderful life. So let's get pissed and watch porn. <laughs> so that was great because the love of his life was his old buddy. So, anyway, that's uh, the ending I liked. So, Greg, what's your next one? My next one is uh, American Hustle with Christian Bale and Bradley Cooper, Amy Adams. It was nominated for a bunch of things in the Academy Award. Almost every major category didn't win, but it did get the Golden Globe for Best Picture. And it was one of my favorites of that year, I think. And Christian Bale plays this kind of... uh, kind of like a like a con man and so he does all kinds of different hustles and things and then the fbi catches up to him and bradley cooper is just so good at playing characters you hate like characters you just want to see (laughs) he is so great at that and this is one of well i I, it's hard for me to say which character of his i hate the most like (laughs) wedding singer is pretty wedding crasher crasher, rather but uh he plays a pretty good character that you just don't want to like and and so the, just when you think the FBI kind of has Christian Bale's character and everything, you know, he's he's got to, you know, they, they just have him. The Christian Bale plays the greatest con, and then Bradley Cooper is, is left, you know, just kind of looking terrible. And it, it, it's just a great ending. I don't want to spoil it for anybody that hasn't seen it, but it's, it's a great film. Uh, you know, I definitely enjoyed the film, but sometimes you watch a film and then it's, the, the ending isn't very satisfactory. And you, you're disappointed with it. That's not the case for American Hustle. I'll have to watch that again. Yeah. Great I like that originally too. James? All right. So my final movie is uh, Swimming with Sharks. And again, it was it came out in 1994. And it, it has uh, Kevin Spacey. Uh, he plays Buddy Ackerman. Frank Whaley as Guy. He's in Opportunity Knocks. He's in the scene from Pulp Fiction with the big Kahuna Burger. Oh, Say okay. what one more yeah. time? That's Frantz Frank Whaley yeah. oh. and uh, and the Michelle Forbes as as Don Lockhart. I, I don't recognize her, but she was. Uh, it's an independent film, and and basically what it is is uh, so uh, uh, Kevin Spacey plays a, a movie mogul, and and uh, and and Frank Whaley plays guy and his assistant and it's it's like the devil wears prada times 562 <laughs> uh he has him do all this crazy stuff and yells at him and goes just crazy i mean you if you see it you truly do hate buddy uh and and they, he gets so angry 
that he he actually kidnaps him and starts torturing him <laughs> and he's like I gotta teach this guy a lesson and uh, and the love interest is is that Michelle Forbes at the end of the movie he's got a gun buddy's got or I mean guy's got the gun to buddy's head and he's about to shoot him and the girl walks in and buddy's like you should shoot me because you're gonna get ahead, you got to do this. This is this is what it, this is what it takes to get ahead in Hollywood, and uh, and he says all these things, and then he starts playing a little reverse psychology on him, and and at the end, uh, all you see, he's like, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up, and boom, the trigger goes off and it goes black, the gun goes off and it goes black, and the next thing you see is guy, and he's been promoted. And Buddy is there too, and he shot the woman, and they blame the torture and everything on him, and he's oh. been promoted. <laughs> wow, that's a good one. That I, I is. Seen and, that one. Uh, that's hardcore. I've never seen that movie. Wow. And uh, it, yeah, because I mean, and you think this? I mean, you just think he deserves to get shot. The guy's just the biggest butthead in the world, and uh, and so it, they did choose to choose to shoot his girlfriend. Oh yeah, he shoots the he shoots the girl and he gets ahead, and uh, I think the 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 last uh, the last thing reveals that uh, guy killed Don, who was blamed for the kidnapping and torturing a buddy, and uh, was subsequently promoted. In the final scene, guy coldly tells a former colleague to find out what he really wants and then do anything to get it. During the speech, Buddy stands by, smiling as he calls Guy into his office for a meeting. <laughs> That's the wow. end. That's pretty hard. He has taught his protege well. You gotta watch that when you're doing well in your life, uh, otherwise you'll shoot yourself. Uh, well, actually, I don't know what I'm talking about because this has a terrible ending too. Really, this is the Bridge Over the River Kwai, which I I love that movie. <coughs> I plenty, love that movie plenty too. Of, plenty yeah. of giant extravaganza. It has Alec Guinness. Uh, is Lieutenant Colonel Nicholson and William Holden. He, he's uh, Commander Shears. The American. Yeah. He came out in 1957. Of course, it has uh, um, Sezu Hayakawa. He's the Colonel Sato. And James Donald as the Major Clifton. And then the, the Lieutenant Joyce. That's Joffrey Hearn. Anyway, at the end of the movie, they're, all this during this movie... They've gotten um, Alec Guinness, uh, Nicholson. He, he thinks of this idea to, to, for morale that he's going to make all his men build the best bridge for Japanese. They're all prisoners of war in this camp. So they're going to build this best bridge. But he gets kind of obsessed with it, kind of cuckoo. And they get it, and he's so proud of it, and all the men are proud of it, and the Japanese are going, well, they're proud of it too, but they're kind of, this is weird. Why are these English so happy? So... William Holden had escaped, the American, and he's coming back with a team, and they're going to blow up this bridge. So they plant all the stuff. They're getting ready to blow it. They're going to do it in the morning because they just found out a train's going to go over the bridge with all these major Japanese uh, bigwigs. So they wait. Well, in the morning, the water goes down. Something happened, and you can see all the wires in that, and they don't know what they're going to do now. So they get the Lieutenant Joyce guy to go over, he sneaks over and he's going to blow up the bridge when the train comes over. Well, there you see Alec Guinness and he's looking over and he, he goes, what's this? And he calls Saito over and goes, look at this, there's a wire. And they start following the wire. And the American, the other people on the other river, they can't believe their eyes. He goes, he's going to show him. 
about blowing up the bridge. And they follow it and they follow it. And um, Saito doesn't know what's going on. He's looking around and as they get really close, Joyce runs up and he stabs Saito so he dies. And then William Holden realizes it's all going to hell. So he runs across the water and he's going up to um, stop Alec Guinness from stopping the bridge being blown. And then the other guys who came with William Holden, they don't trust he's going to stop them. So they start firing mortars over. And part of the, the stuff hits William Holden and it hits uh, Alec Guinness. And then he suddenly looks up and goes, oh, what have I done? And then he falls onto the the switch, the, the plunger, bl the plunger that blows up the bridge <laughs> as the train's coming over with all the people and the whole bridge and every blows up and everyone's dead. And the, the doctor who he's the uh, um, uh, uh, Clipton, Major Clipton, he just wanders out sort of stunned and he's looking over everything going, madness, madness! And then that's the end of the movie. <laughs> After all the buildup and everything, it's very crazy. It was a good ending. Oh, you hear the whistling, you know. <laughs> and it pans back from the blown up river, you know, bridge. Very good. So good again, one. That was a good pick. I guess I like uh, Terrible Endings too. And lots of death. And Greg, how are we finishing this out? Well, it's uh, not in film. It's actually a TV show. You know, my favorite TV shows used to be, Seinfeld's still one of my favorite. I love it to death. Uh, Sopranos, well-written show. But with both those shows, the ending was so disappointing. It was just so anticlimactic. Um, but with this show, and of course it's going to be Breaking Bad, the ending was very satisfying. I'm not going to really go into how it ends because if you've seen it, you know, and if you haven't seen it, you just have to experience it. But the show is is just so so well written. A lot of times with a TV show like such as Lost, it was a great show in the first seasons, and then you kind of feel like in the last season they don't know they don't know what they're doing. They didn't have a, a vision, maybe. Uh, it, it's a great show, but the ending on Lost was a little, little. Uh, some people love it, but it w wasn't quite as good as it was in the beginning. Breaking Bad, the first episode you watch, it's fantastic. You, you're drawn in within the first few minutes, and it, every episode they do it. The writers do a great job of like pulling you in. Oh, I, got, I can't wait! It's a great show to binge watch because it's hard to sit. I, I actually didn't watch it from week to week. I binge watched it, and it's the only real way to watch it. Well, I'll but, have to do that now because it's on Netflix. So yeah. Absolutely, but but the ending, it, it, the, the fifth season is just as good as the first season. It's very consistent, and if you haven't seen it, it's it's so well written. And a very the most satisfying ending of any TV show I've wow. ever seen. That's, that's and by the, way, by the way, the spinoff, Better Carl Saul, I had very low expectations. First season just wrapped up. It's one of the best written shows on television. Oh, it's fantastic. Very cool. So. All right, so so ends the discussion on our favorite endings, and uh, I hope that uh, we've all been a little bit more enlightened yeah, by, and, the, and by the endings. And we didn't blow anybody's high by uh, <laughs> telling you the ending of uh, movies you were going to watch. Uh, warning, warning, spoiler alert. Uh, a little late. You thought Mr. Body was dead, but why? None of you even met him till tonight. You're Mr. Body. <laughs> Wait a minute. So who did I kill? My butler. Oh, shucks. He was expendable like all of you. 
I'm grateful to you all for disposing of my network of spies and informers. Saved me a lot of trouble. Now there's no evidence against me. This all has nothing to do with my disappearing nuclear physicist husband or Colonel Mustard's work with the new top-secret fusion bomb. <laughs> no. Communism was just a red herring. But the police will be here any minute. You'll never get away with this, any of you. Why should the police come? Nobody's called them. You mean, oh, this my God, end. of course. So why shouldn't we get away with it? Beautiful we'll stack the bodies in the cellar, lock it, leave quietly one at a time, and forget that any of this ever happened. This is the you'll end. Just, you'll just go on blackmailing us off. Of course. Why not? Well, I'll tell you why not. Are you a cop? No, I'm a plant. Plant? I thought men like you were usually called a fruit. Very funny. FBI. That phone call from J. Edgar Hoover was for me. Okay, Chief, take him away. I'm gonna go home and sleep with my wife. Hey, Jack, thanks for the IRS publication on the 81 tax law changes. Oh, yeah, good stuff. Covers interest and dividend income, the sale of a home if you're 55 or over, and more. Yeah? Yeah, it's free, too. They call it IRS Publication 553. And the order form's in your tax package to get it. You must have written it. <laughs> it's a message from the IRS. Well, boys, I think that's about all the time we have for today. What'd you think? Pretty good show today? Yeah, pretty good, bad. man. Yeah. All right, so what are we going to send off our listeners with today? Well, we have some sad news. The great Stan Freeberg passed away this month. So we're going to have a few clips in honor of the great man as we go out. So long for now. This is Uncle Frank. This is Jimmy Sweets. This is Greg. Have a pleasant tomorrow. Well, I used to have these terrible headaches right here at the temple. And then I heard about Cheerios and... Oh, no, no. Cheerios are not a headache remedy. I'm sorry. I thought you were from a different company. No, uh... I've been interviewed so much lately, I just got confused. No, Cheerios are a breakfast cereal. My kids eat them all the time. Mm-hmm. How about you? Well, no, not personally. I don't eat them personally, no. Cheerios are just for the children. You know, little O's. Well, the O shape is functional. It permits all-around toasting. I see. Uh, the uh, uh, Cheerios are just as much for adults, then. That's right. The big G on the box stands for grown-ups. I never realized that. I'll uh, give them a try tomorrow morning. Fine. 150 eventful years have passed. A new spirit of restlessness grips the 13 English colonies, smarting from what seems to them injustice at the hands of King George III, the... American colonists yearn for liberty. Boston Harbor, 1774. Two figures huddle on the deck of a cargo ship there in the darkness. Whoops. Jeez, Charlie, you knocked that whole load of tea in the water there. Well, I miscalculated with the block and tackle, that's yeah, all. Yeah, well, I mean, you blew it. You missed the whole deck there. Yeah, well, maybe nobody will know. Well, what do you mean? There's tea floating all over the place. I mean, how can I go and demand an hourly increase for you guys? Yeah, with yeah, well, fringe, I, 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 no, uh, with fringe uh, benefits and uh, all that. If 
My men keep knocking stuff overboard. Well, I, I, I'm sorry. Sorry doesn't uh, do any good, Charlie. Now, I'll cover for you this time, but let's get our story straight. Good, okay? good, good, good. Now, uh, a bunch of those Patriot guys came sneaking around dressed up in... Uh, uh, how, how about in Indian suits? That's good. In Indian suits. Good. Uh, they were a little loaded, and uh, they shoved the tea over because they were sore about the tea tax. Okay? Okay. You think anybody will swallow that? Well, it's just wild enough, Charlie. Uh. Daylight come and me won't go home. Wow, man, I'll have to ask you not to shout like that. Well, it's uh, like right in my ear, man. Well, it goes with the song. Yeah, you know? but don't holler in my ear, well, man. Well, it's authentic uh, calypso. Yeah, but like shout. when I stand next to me, man. Well, the shout go with the bongo drums. Well, not my bongo drums, man. I mean, move away. Well, man. I don't see why. Uh, no, 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 no. Stand well, over next to the guitar, man. He sent me over here. Yeah. Well, then sing soft, man. You know, I mean, like, wow. Okay. Yeah. It's too loud, man. Yeah. That's better. He's a day, 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 oh, daylight come and me won't go home. Yeah, man. Who work all night and a drink of rum. Daylight come and me won't go home. Stock banana till the morning come. Daylight come and me won't go home. Lift six foot, seven foot, eight foot punch. Too loud, man. Too loud. Six foot, seven hold it, foot, man. eight hold it, hold foot, it, man. bunch. My ears, my ears, like my ears. No, hold it, man. It's too shrill, man. It's too piercing. Oh, well, I don't see why. No, it's too piercing, man. Uh, it's too piercing. Well, I got to the shout. No, man, it's too piercing. Like I don't dig loud noises. Well, you ruined the whole piercing record is what you do. Yeah, well, tough. I'll take my bongos and go, man, because the whole thing is like bugging me anyhow. Yeah, well, wait a minute. I won't no, shout. I'm no, I'm cutting, man. No. Like I didn't want to make this gig in the first place. No, no, wait a minute. I'll be soft. Yeah. Well, then back off of me, man. It's too piercing. Okay. How's this? Too loud, man. Okay. Too loud, man. I can still hear you. Would you mind leaving the room? Okay. Crazy. Daylight come and me won't go home. Daylight come and me won't go home. A beautiful bunch of ripe banana. Daylight come and me won't go home. Hide the deadly black tarantula. Daylight oh, come man, don't sing about spiders. I mean, ooh, well, like I don't dig spiders. Well, that's that's how the song goes. He goes, hide the deadly black tarantula. Daylight come and me won't go Is that it? Can I leave now? Oh, not yet. We got a big finish. Hey. Yeah, man. I locked myself out. Crazy. I come through the window. Daylight come and me won't go. Home. 